our Bibles now, if you would, and let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. And tonight we come to the last of the series of messages on the doctrine of endless punishment. And I am, of course, referring to the final judgment of men that are wicked sinners that will stand before God and receive the just deserts of their lives that they have lived upon this earth. Now, our text verses are verses 11 through 15, and this will be the sixth time that we've read these words, and I hope by now they've really sunk down deep into you, and, and you've really carefully considered how important that the subject is that we're talking about. So Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, as you know, we've been studying for several weeks about this passage, which is the judgment of God at the last day. And we're speaking of people here that appear before God's judgment that have lived all of their lives and they have not repented of their sins. They've not turned to Jesus Christ in faith. They've not asked God to forgive them. And those that have not come to Christ, surrendering to his lordship and recognizing that he is the savior of the world, will stand before God in judgment. And as scripture says here, they will be judged according to all the deeds that they've done in their lives. So the Bible teaches very clearly, I think, in in what we've seen thus far, in the reality of this place that's called hell. And it's a place of suffering and of torment. And it's a place where the soul and body that dies without Christ goes forever and stays there because of crimes that are committed against God. I don't derive any particular pleasure in preaching on this subject. Uh, I, I don't derive pleasure from preaching one sermon, much less that I would preach six consecutive sermons on this. But I know that there are many questions that are asked about it, and I know that it's a doctrine that is largely ignored in churches today. As I told you, I think it was last week or the week before, someone went out after the services and said, I'd never heard those things. The church that, I, that I've been going to never talks about this. I don't know about this. And so the trend today in preaching is to go away from anything that would make people unhappy. Uh, It's the job of the preacher, people think, or the preacher thinks to keep people coming and and let people know that salvation is a cure for their doldrums, that that, uh, being a Christian will just make every person's dream come true. So there's not much preaching today in churches about judgment. There's not much about hell. And if the subject is ever broached, people talk about hell in a joking way. People talk about it haphazardly or as a point of passing interest or marginal interest. But anybody that thinks like that and ignores this doctrine of Scripture is really passing over a great amount of material, especially what was spoken by Jesus himself. 
In fact, Jesus dealt with the subject on many different occasions. Uh, he talked about hell quite often. He talked about the suffering of hell. And under, underneath the teachings of Christ will always loom in the background what happens to a person that doesn't believe in him. So Jesus talked about it directly many, many times. But when he spoke indirectly... It's always the background, always this thought of endless punishment for not receiving what he says. Whenever Jesus said things like, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Underneath all of that lies the reality of eternal punishment. And those statements that he makes uh, just give us the necessity for this place that's called hell. Now, the truth of salvation is that we are saved from something. There's some great danger that lurks out there, and if we're not saved, we're not safe from that danger. And the danger, as the Bible describes it, is this place called hell. The danger is real. And uh, it shows us that every person right now is standing over the pit of hell without Christ. If they don't know him, they're ready to fall in unless God should prevent that from happening. Now, the truth is that God's wrath is kindled. And God gives time and space for repentance. He gives time for people to turn to him for salvation. But his patience doesn't last forever. And our lives don't last forever. And unless people turn from their sins and trust Christ, the inevitable conclusion of their entire existence is this place called hell. So eternity in the fires of hell is the danger that Christ enables us to escape. The truth is that the only thing that separates the lost from hell is one breath. The last breath is the only one that separates a person from hell if they're not a believer in Christ. And so when judgment comes, the sentence has already been passed. People who haven't believed are already condemned. Eternal punishment is the reward for not having received the saving grace of God. Now, we've already discussed many, many different aspects of this in the previous five messages, and there's just so much material that we've covered that I I don't have time to go back, and I think that most of everything that I've said is very straightforward, very easy to understand, so there's so much material. We're not going to go back over that. So tonight, we're going to finish the subject, and as you know, I'm never going to be done preaching on hell. It will come up. We'll talk about hell because we can't preach Christ and we can't preach salvation without mentioning what we're saved from. There are awful consequences in dying without Christ. So Christ's preaching and the apostles' preaching was continually laced with this, that what a person needs to do is turn from the wrath that is to come. So tonight, your your first six points of the outline are missing. And we're going to take up the final consideration this evening, which is the consensus for eternal punishment. Now, I've tried to show you in the previous five messages that there is absolutely no excuse for the exclusion of preaching about hell. I mean, there is so much in the Bible about this. The Bible teaches it. And if we only had the 20th chapter of Revelation to tell us about it, that would be enough to show us that that this doctrine of hell, endless punishment, is a reality, and we do need to preach it. But it's not just the 20th chapter that we find in Revelation. It's all throughout the Bible. There is a real place that's called hell. And we've also seen descriptions of it. In the last message, uh, 
we noted how that Jesus gave this graphic illustration of hell by calling it Gehenna. And what he did was to compare it to the Valley of Hinnom that was right next to the city of Jerusalem. And in times past, in Old Testament times, that was a valley that was used for human sacrifices by causing people to be burned in fires. And there were so many people that were sacrificed in that valley that the fires were burning continually. Well, by the time of Jesus, uh, they weren't sacrificing people in the valley of Hinnom any longer. But what had happened, it had turned into a garbage dump. And since the time, about the time of Josiah, the, uh, the Valley of Hinnom had been used as a garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. And what they would do is they would take the bodies of the indigent there. They would take the bodies of criminals there. They would take all the refuse out of, refuse out of the city, the stinking garbage, and they would take it into that valley and they would burn it. And there was an endless supply of maggots that crawled throughout that place, devouring those bodies and all of the garbage that was put there. And so when Jesus looked out over that and he called this place Gehenna, he was showing people that hell is a place of eternal torment. It's a fire that never goes out. So Jesus had a, just a, a graphic description of hell right there. And there's no doubt that the Bible teaches this. We can't overlook the teachings of Jesus on this. That hell is a place of endless suffering. So the Bible does not teach what many people believe, which is annihilation. The Bible shows that this fire burns forever, and the souls and the bodies of men are placed there for eternal destruction. They're given bodies that are fit to be eternally destroyed in the fires of hell. And yet, despite all of the remarkable biblical evidence that we have for it, there are still many people that say they believe the Bible, but they don't believe in everlasting punishment. And the truth is, folks, that hell is actually ingrained into the human psyche. I mean, there are reasons for hell to exist from both God and man's standpoint. And so we can't just explain away hell because we don't like it. And we can't leave it out, leave it out of our preaching because we don't like the subject. So we have to preach it. Denying the reality of hell is no more natural for a person than denying the existence of God. Now the scriptures show us there is an innate sense that there is a God. To believe in God is, or not to believe in God is to deny the rational, much less the spiritual. And similarly, to deny the doctrine of hell is to deny what is rational, not only what is spiritual. Denying hell is not a product of rational thought. You see, people have to be educated against this doctrine. They have to be educated against a belief in God. They are educated against a belief in hell. It doesn't come naturally. Now, I want to ask you a question to begin with here. How many of you people believe that there are unicorns? Anybody here believe that there well, Lino believes in unicorns? How many of you believe that there really is a My Little Pony with a a horn sticking out of its head and has a pink mane and all of that. I mean, you really believe in such a thing. Some of you might, okay. How many of you believe that the earth is flat? Well, I don't think that we're going to argue about whether the earth is flat. We don't spend time arguing about whether there are unicorns. I mean, we pretty much all come to the conclusion over a period of time, since we've not seen one and since uh, there's no evidence for any that there aren't any unicorns, and there's not a flat earth, that's already been proven not to exist or that that, that the earth is round. And so you're not going to pick up a newspaper and read arguments about unicorns. 
You're not going to find somebody over here arguing for the existence of unicorns and you're not going to pick up a scientific journal if you read those and and find out that there's some scientists over here that are still arguing that there is a flat earth. You're not going to pick up any arguments about that. That's long been decided. That's out of our minds. We know that those things aren't true. But when it comes to this doctrine of hell, there is continual argument about it. William G.T. Shedd stated it this way. He said, The very denial of endless retribution evinces by its spasmodic eagerness an effort to disprove the tenet, the firmness with which it is entrenched in man's moral constitution. If there really was no hell, absolute indifference toward the notion would have long since been the mood of mankind, and no arguments either for or against it would be constructed. You see, people are talking about hell all the time, and people are arguing back and forth about hell all the time. It's a constant thing that's in our minds. At some point or another, somebody's going to raise this question, is there a place called hell? And they have to decide either for or against a belief in this place. And the argument has gone on for centuries. There's, there's never been a time when people have not argued back and forth over the existence of an eternal hell. Even in non-Christian religions, they have a notion about such a place that's called hell or something similar to it. So just the fact that this hasn't passed out of human conscience, that we, we stopped arguing about this issue a long, long time ago, is enough to show us that this is something that is in the human brain, the human psyche. In a, it's ingrained right down into us that there is a place of punishment, and the Bible says that this place is called hell. So we're going to spend our time tonight giving you some reasons why we're still preaching the doctrine of endless punishment. Now, first of all, would be letter A on your listening sheet, is the design intended. Why would God create a place called hell? Well, you can't decide things by, you can't decide the truth by taking a poll. But if uh, we were to take a poll and vote on the subject, how many people would vote that God is the cause of a place called hell? I mean, how many people would vote in favor of that? Well, people are angry at God, and they don't like the doctrine of hell, because if not for God, then this place called hell wouldn't exist. But it may surprise you what I'm going to say next, because it looked like everybody was nodding approvingly that God is the cause of a place called hell. But the truth of the matter is, there is nothing in God that makes hell a necessity. There's no action that God has ever taken that makes hell necessary. Hell exists only because the actions, because of the actions of those that God created. And so if there had never been a first sin, there would be no need for hell. There would be no need for punishment. And the very first sin, as all sins are, are caused by man's activity and by man's free will. Now, there are a lot of people that like to argue the issue of free will. And they get very upset about this if you tell them that God's activity trumps man's free will. But if that wasn't true in salvation, if we left everything to man's free will, then every single person would die and go to hell. Because it was free will that led man into the very first sin. Adam chose to sin against God when he didn't even have a sinful nature. And since that time, all people have chosen to do the very same thing that Adam did. And the fact is also true that after man sinned, that God provided redemption for sin. And if every person had simply repented of their sins and turned to God, there would still be no necessity for hell. Hell exists 
Because there, is, there have always been people that will not repent. And the world is full of people that have broken God's laws. They will not repent of it. And there might even be some people in the room tonight that are just like that. And so if you want me to put it to you real simply, if you haven't trusted Christ, then you are part of the reason why that this place called hell exists. So it's not because of God, but it's because of what man has done. And still, in spite of what man has done, God has provided a way that no one should have to be punished for sin. It's only by man's stubbornness and his refusal to repent that hell exists. Now, the Scripture says that God is merciful. He's gracious. Exodus 34, in God's own words, he said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. The Bible teaches that God is willing to forgive and, and to settle this issue, but men will not repent of their sins. God has provided redemption so that man doesn't have to go to hell. But what man does is to refuse the mercy and the grace of God, and hell exists because of man and not because of God. Now, the purpose then, it's where I'm driving here, the purpose of hell is punishment. The design of hell is actually punishment. And hell has to be everlasting because the purpose of hell is not to reform man. Hell is not remedial remedial punishment. In fact, if the thing that, that, that improves man is not punishment, the thing that improves him is redemption. And if we could have been improved by punishment, then Christ never would have needed to come into the world. All he would do is say, well, I'm going to punish you. Punishment will do the trick. Uh, you won't repent and believe, and so instead I'm going to punish you to such an extent that all of your sins will be paid for. And so if God has to resort to punishment to improve us, then that would say that punishment is actually more effective than redemption. And in a sense, that's exactly what Roman Catholicism teaches when they teach the doctrine of purgatory. That Christ's death and his redemption are insufficient to pay the full price of sin, and so thus God resorts to punishment to finish purging you from your sin. So in effect... They're saying that purgatory is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, hell has to be into eternal punishment because man is never improved by it. The design is not to improve anybody. The design is punishment. Now, secondly, we believe in everlasting punishment, and we still teach this because the doctrine of the atonement is affected. The doctrine of the atonement is affected. If hell is not real then there is no eternal punishment. And if that's true, then the doctrine of the atonement is affected. You see, if hell is for a finite period of time, then it means that the atonement is devalued. It means that the suffering of Christ was not infinite. And it would also mean that crimes that are made against God or committed against God are not, much, not really much more than, than indiscretions against man. But because of, of God's infinite worth... The one who has sinned against, God is the one who sinned against. Because of his infinite worth, there has to be infinite punishment to satisfy that worth. Now, let me give you an example of what I, what I mean by this. If we, if we took the, the example of David's sin against Uriah, now we all know about the story how that David uh, committed adultery with Uriah's wife. He stole his wife and uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. So he sinned against Uriah, and he even went a step further that he took Uriah's life. 
Now, as far as man is concerned, there, there is a penalty that would satisfy those crimes. The ultimate satisfaction for Uriah was that David's life would be forfeited for his. Now, see, man can't do anything more than just to impose death. That would be the worst sentence that could be imposed. And when a person is given a death sentence, what do we say? Justice has been served. And that's the end of it. But we notice that when David acknowledged his sin, he, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, but he said to God, against thee, Psalm 51 verse 4, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So David recognized that the greater sin was against God. And if we were to say that David's sin against God could be satisfied with a finite punishment, then God stands in relation to David the same as Uriah. Now, David knew that that wasn't true, and that's why he was repentant and why he was concerned about the great sin that he had committed against God. God is infinite. And so the only way that sins against him can be satisfied is by an infinite punishment. You see, the fact that God became man and paid the price for sin, paid such a stupendous price to remove our sins, is an argument, one of the greatest arguments that we have for eternal punishment. Hell cannot be annihilation because that devalues the blood of Christ, devalues the suffering of Christ. If hell isn't everlasting, then the suffering of Christ was not infinite. And so actually what that would do is to put the sacrifice of Christ into the same category as a man that would die for restitution. Whether that's a million men or whatever dying for restitution, yet still, if it's, if it's finite punishment, then, then God hasn't done anything more than what man could actually do himself. So what's established then by eternal suffering is the extreme difference in the nature, the difference in the nature between God and man. We belong to two different realms, two completely different realms. And even when believers in Christ are taken to eternity in heaven, we don't become equals with God when we get there. Now, as I talked about this morning, that uh, we become joint heirs with Christ, we're received as sons, but still, when we get to heaven, we are forever in submission to God. We don't become God. So there's a there's a difference in the realm between God and man. God stands in a completely, it's so completely, so much more, much higher, I should say, that there's no way that we can estimate the difference between the, the, uh, the worth of man and God. Then thirdly, we believe in endless punishment, and we, and we teach this because endless sins must be endlessly punished. You see, when a person dies and goes to hell, that doesn't mean that he stops being a sinner. He doesn't cease to be guilty of sin. See, in order for a person to go to heaven, the guilt of sin has to be removed. The actual transgressions have to be paid for. It doesn't matter how many there are, even if there's only one, they have to be paid for because if not, then that person, well, I should say that person is forever guilty. Something has to be done to take away the guilt. See, once a crime is committed, there's never a time when a person isn't guilty of that crime. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, that even if you go to prison for whatever number of years, even for the rest of your life, that never takes away the fact that you committed the crime. It never takes away the guilt. Now, you might satisfy man's penalty, but you're never free from the guilt. The fact of the guilt still remains. Now, when, when, with the sinner, what God has done is to provide a way that even his guilt is taken away. 
by the sacrifice of Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us by faith, the guilty sinner is declared not guilty before God. And that's because the record of sin is removed. God looks at the record, and there's nothing there. It's all been taken away, and it's been taken away in the substitute Jesus Christ. And so there's no longer a record of sin, so there's no reason for punishment. So what God does in both of the in salvation is take away both these aspects of, of man's guilt before God, not just the guilt of the sin itself, but the, the wrath that's incurred, the punishment for sin that's incurred, uh, punishment that's incurred because of their sin against God. And that's expressed in two words, propitiation and expiation. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath, and expiation is the removal of man's guilt. Both of those ideas were expressed in the Old Testament sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Now let me remind you for a moment here of what happened on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. On that day, one time per year, there were two goats that were taken. And one of these goats was killed, and the blood of that goat was taken, and it was taken into the Holy of Holies, and that blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat there, and that blood, that sprinkling of blood, was for the appeasement of wrath. But the second goat was to remain alive, and what they did was they, the high priest would confess the sins of the people on the head of that goat, and the live goat was taken out into the wilderness and let go. The Bible says into a land that's not inhabited. And since it was impossible to portray both of those pictures in one goat, they had to use two goats. One for the sacrifice, which would be the appeasement of wrath. That's propitiation. And the other one would be to take away sin, take sin away from us, take the guilt of sin away from us. That's the expiation of sin. That's what expiation is. Propitiation is appeasement of wrath. Expiation is the taking away of sin or the taking away of the guilt of sin. So both of those things were pictured on the great day of atonement. And so when Christ came, he was able to do in one act, he was able to satisfy God's wrath and also to take away our guilt. Now, one of the greatest problems of people that are in hell is there's no way to have their guilt removed. The only possible way that that can be done is by Jesus Christ, and they have refused Christ. So punishment never takes away the guilt. And then further, sin arises out of the sinful nature. You see, the will of man is dead set against God, and if the will is not changed, then man continues in his disobedience to God. See, if man doesn't repent of his sins, uh, if he wouldn't do that on earth, he's certainly not going to repent in hell because the sinful nature prevents him from doing it. The Scripture says you have to be born again. That's when you're enabled to repent and able to trust God. Now, here again is what uh, G.T. Shedd, William G.T. Shedd, says about this issue. He says that sin is the suicidal action of the human will. A man is not forced to kill himself, but if he does, he cannot bring himself to life again. And a man is not forced to sin, but if he does, he cannot get back where he was before sinning. And so what happens in hell is that sin is perpetuated. Man's rebellion and his hatred of God because of punishment can only intensify. And so what you have is perpetual punishment because there is perpetual sin. It says one author said, Sin is the only perpetual motion which is yet to be found out and needs nothing but a beginning to keep it incessantly going on. If you read the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 
There's one thing you won't find in that passage, and that's repentance. You'll never find that the rich man in hell, when he lifted up his eyes in torment, he never asked for forgiveness. He never said, I repent. In fact, when he asked for that mercy, when he asked for the drop of water to cool his tongue, that's actually an act of defiance against God. Because what the rich man was saying, that my suffering, I don't deserve the suffering that I have. It's not right for God to punish me in this way. That suffering must be eased. I want it to be eased. And so he doesn't agree with God that the punishment against him is just. And of course, that in itself is sin against God. So you imagine that in hell that there is no will to change. There's no ability to repent. There's no desire to serve God. And then you heap on top of that continuous, unbearable suffering, what does that do? Well, it keeps the person sinning. It hardens his heart even more against God. He's even more defiant against God. And so his sin becomes that perpetual motion machine. The engine runs and it runs and it runs because the fuel never is gone. It's, it's an endless supply. Sin feeds on punishment and punishment feeds on sin. So it goes on and on and on. There's no way to stop it. Well, there's a fourth reason that hell is endless punishment. And I think this one might surprise you as well. And that is hell is the preferred destiny of the sinner. Now, maybe he doesn't realize it right now, but hell is the preferred destiny of the sinner. You see, when you die, there's only one of two places that you can go. And I've spent all of this time in six messages with a continuous warning about eternal judgment and condemnation. And if you remember, all the way back in the beginning, we started with the premise that John is viewing the end times, and all accounts are going to be settled. The world has ended, and the future state of man is fixed as a destiny for one of two places. And then additionally, the Scripture teaches there are only two classes of people. There are the saved and the lost. That's the redeemed and the, or the unredeemed, or if you want to put it another way, the righteous and the unrighteous. And God always deals with people on that basis, those two categories, because there aren't any others. And so at the end, there can only be two places to go. And of course, we know one is heaven and one is hell. And so when a lost person dies, the only other destiny that could be a possibility for him would be heaven. But lost people don't even desire the company of the the redeemed on earth. They're not going to desire the company of the redeemed that are in heaven. Lost people don't prefer to be around Christians. And in and, and this life, Christians are not yet entirely sanctified. We still sin, and yet lost people do not prefer the company of a, of a Christian who's trying to live for God and trying to act like he should and do the things that he should and doesn't enter into the sins that other people go into. Now, Christians still sometimes sin, but we have a desire to overcome it. And it's the desire to overcome sin that causes this antagonistic attitude in lost people towards Christians. And that's because Christians live in the light. Lost people hate the light. And the Bible describes why. It's the reason. Because evil deeds are exposed by the light. And so people don't like to be around Christians. Now, you imagine then what it would be lost for a lo- like for a lost person to live in continuous light when he's suffering from continuous guilt. Now, in the Christian community, we know that there's life and health and peace. 
There's happiness that's indescribable. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You understand that. Faith in God is an unshakable source of fortitude. Faith in God is, belief in him is the hedge against our hopelessness. And yet for all the goodness that comes out of what Christ has done for us in believing in Christ, what real Christianity is, what do lost people continue to do? They want to continue in sin. They still want their vices. I mean, you look at it. I mean, and explain to me why that people insist on the right to kill themselves with drugs and with alcohol. Why is it that people break up their families with the bad habits that they have and, and all the things that they do? They put little children at risk in the family. Explain why people are, are selfish and they think that nobody has the right to limit their vices. Lots of people think that they ought to have the freedom to do whatever it is that they want. So how are they going to react to heaven? Heaven would be a worse place than hell for them. And that's because they're not suited for it. God has not made the lost person for it. And the truth is that you and I would hate hell as much as a lost person if we went to hell without having this, or heaven rather, without having having this vile body changed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So hell, heaven rather, is, is a prison for someone that would be there without being changed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So God hasn't suited lost people for it. It's not made for them. So they would hate, hate to be in heaven. The body isn't changed. They still had vile corruption. Now all that you really need to do is to look at Satan. I mean, you know what he's like. He, and he knows what heaven is like. He was in heaven. He knows what's there. He was probably the most beautiful of God's creatures, but he fell. He sinned because of his pride, and, and Satan is forever unrepentant of that. Satan is not content to be one of billions of angels that sit around giving praises to God. Satan's pride prevents that. What Satan wants to do is to be the top dog. So he can't return to God He doesn't want to. He's already proved heaven's no good for him. And that's why he spends all of his time now until God casts him in this this lake of fire trying to overcome God. He doesn't want to submit. The demons that, that follow him don't want to submit. And the plain truth is that those that those men that have not trusted Christ, they do not trust him because they don't want to submit. And they're never going to want to submit. See, a lost person doesn't prefer to submit to God, so he's much better suited for hell because he remains in defiance of God. Now, some people have this idea, and it's a pure fallacy to think that that people in hell are, are somehow repentant and they're yearning for God to come and let them out of that place. And, and it's really a hoax to think that there are people in hell that are crying out to God saying, please let me out of here. And the reason that they don't do that because the only place that they could possibly go would be to heaven. And it would be as bad for them in heaven or even worse to be there in one sense of the word than it is to be in hell. Now you go back to that example of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the conversation that, that happened between the rich man, he's in hell suffering, he's in torment, and he speaks to Father Abraham? What did he say? Did he say, Father Abraham, let me come to you. Let me get out of here. Let me come to you. That's what we would expect, wouldn't we? We would think that would be the foremost thing on his mind. Let me out of here. Let me come where you are. But you know what he said? He didn't say, let me come to you. He said, send Lazarus to me. Send Lazarus to me. So he wasn't thinking about getting out of hell. He didn't want to get out of that place to be released into heaven. Heaven, of course, is not a fire for him, but it's torturous in its own way. 
Think what it would be like. I mean, how many people are in prison more than they're in their minds than they are by things that go on around them? Anything exterior to them. A lost man in heaven would be a madman tortured for eternity being in that place. He doesn't need God to do it for him. So he would be like the man sitting around in the tombs, cutting himself, berating himself, torturing himself because he's not suited for that place. So what I'm trying to show you is there are consensus for there is a consensus for eternal punishment from God's perspective and that hell would never contain a human soul if it wasn't for the willful disobedience of man. And what God did in the Garden of Eden, he clothed the nakedness of Adam after he committed that sin. A self-performed, gracious act of God was done in killing innocent animals to clothe Adam's nakedness. And that is the very earliest picture that we have in Scripture of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so God didn't want to put anybody in hell. He provided a way out so that people wouldn't have to go to hell. And people are there for only one reason, their disobedience. And whether you want to call that the disobedience of their personal sin, or if you want to call it disobedience to the gospel, that's why they're there. You see, God is holy, and so he can't let disobedience go of the law to the law go unchallenged because to do that would make man greater than God. If man could defy God, then man could rule the universe. And that is exactly what people want to do. People want to be in charge. And so they don't want restraints. They don't want to submit to God. And in that condition, God still said, I don't want people to die and go to hell. And so he sent Christ. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? It says that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so before the first man ever committed the first sin, God said, I'm going to provide a way out for this, a way out of it. Sins can be forgiven. Nobody needs to go to hell. And so hell did not have to exist because of God's activity. Nothing that God did caused it. Man makes it necessary. And so if it wasn't for man's rejection of Christ, hell would have made, remained a place only for this. Man would never even have to be concerned about it because it would only be a place for the devil and his angels. Let me read to you a small part of our statement of faith. The sixth article of our confession is titled, Of the Freeness of Salvation. And it reads this way, We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by a cordial, penitent, and obedient faith, and that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel, which rejection involves him in an aggravated condemnation. And so there you have it. Hell is real. It's everlasting. The final judgment when it comes is a courtroom for the condemned. And people appear at this judgment as this statement of faith says in aggravated condemnation. There's only one way for a person to escape judgment. Only one way to escape the sentence that's imposed there. And that's the immediate duty of all to accept the blessings of the gospel by cordial, penitent, and obedient faith. The Bible teaches there is this place called hell. But thank the Lord for this. It also teaches there is a place called heaven. And there is a way to go to heaven. And Jesus explained it simply. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. He'll be the Lord of your life. And he'll be 
the Lord of heaven when you get there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these doctrines that we have the opportunity to preach. And Lord, we, we have to make the doctrine of hell so, so real, so clear to people that they understand the consequences of not receiving Christ as Savior. Lord, I don't, I don't know that if there's anyone here that's lost in their sins and hasn't received you as Savior. Uh, we usually assume on our Sunday night services and, and Wednesday nights that we don't see too many lost people of any. But if there is someone here that is struggling with this issue and they, they haven't truly repented of their sins, they don't have the evidence of Jesus Christ in their lives, I pray, Lord, that right now that your Holy Spirit would turn them around, they would surrender in submission to you. And then, Lord, we have to praise your name for this doctrine of hell. Not that we like it, and not like that we like to think about people that might die and go there, but it's a testament to your justice. And we know that your laws must be upheld, and we know that without that, you can't be the great God of the universe, and you couldn't even be a savior of men. And so, Lord, we have to respect what you have done, accept what you have done, receive the truth of what you have said, and then, Lord, warn people about this awful place called hell. So we ask you to be with your people. Bless us as we contemplate these issues. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.